All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the To Comply or Not To Comply podcast. I'm your host, AJ Yan, founder and CEO of ByteCheck, the only all-in-one compliance solution in the industry. Super excited to have my friend Val Dabroshkin here, who is the Director of Risk and Compliance at No Name Security and someone that I've gotten to know well over the last year and some change now, I think. So super excited to have a great conversation with the security leader. Val, thank you for joining us. Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you because I've been following you a lot you know, online and social media, and I really appreciate how open and transparent you've been your journey as a startup founder, and also the really great material that you and your team often share with the larger audience and really helpful to the industry and the security and compliance folks around the world. So I'm really excited to talk about this. I have about 20 plus years in IT, mostly around security, different various of compliance from DOD side and transitioning more into the private sector and FedRAMP and SOC2 and ISO and all kinds of other acronyms. But what really excites me about the compliance space in general is I feel like, well, and, and that security too, that everyone I meet is so dedicated about doing the right thing and has very strong ethics and values. And the compliance piece is what kind of holds it all together to ensure that we do our due diligence, that we help vet companies, we help ensure internally the companies do the right thing. It's a really exciting field to be in. And I also appreciate the fact that you're very open and transparent about mental health and just supporting each other because there are different types of studies, but it, it feels like even like half the industry people are feeling the burnout and struggling with mental health. And with the security and IT field, I think it's mainly populated by introverts. So a lot of people like myself, we hold a lot of things in and, and it's difficult to share and open up. So having someone who's a leader like yourself being open about you know the challenges and, and inviting the conversation, I think has been really helpful. So I'm here for you, whatever you'd like to ask or, or talk about compliance or not compliance related. So I'm really excited to get going. Yeah, I appreciate that and really appreciate, you know, your support on the stuff I share and the stuff the team shares as well. I think one of the key components of us just being better security professionals is folks being willing to share information and educate the community. And I think that's what it really is. But I mean, you've you've been doing the security and compliance thing here for 20 years. You mentioned a lot of those acronyms out there, FedRAMP, SOC2, ISO, etc., in your experience, what's the framework out there that you've enjoyed the most working with from a compliance perspective that allows you to really show value to folks inside of the company? I'm a little bit biased towards SOC 2. I think it has enough customization to really meet any business need, but it also has enough due diligence and enforcement on the CPA side, vetting the controls to ensure standards. Uh, typically, if I manage a third-party risk management program, I look at SOC 2 reports as the gold standard for you know, what I want to see from my vendors. And, and I read those reports in great detail because the one challenge of having the customization of SOC 2 is it could be all kinds of really important controls that the company decides not to audit against or the auditor doesn't write up that well to highlight. So while I may see no deficiencies or exceptions noted in the report, it doesn't necessarily mean that this company actually does the practice that they need or... In some cases, people forget that we need the surface to be available, but the SOC 2 report only includes the security and maybe confidentiality criteria, not the availability criteria. So that's important. 
And I guess the the other one, I would say ISO 27001 as more like international standard, also very customizable, but I think it's a little bit more prescriptive than it needs to be. And generally requires a lot more overhead than a SOC 2 without, from my perspective, the value that the SOC 2 provides. I think if you're going to, especially if you're a young company or startup or you don't want to invest everything into really comprehensive compliance program, but you want to do something right from the ground up and, and expand as you go along, SOC 2 is the best standard to go with. Yeah, I agree on SOC 2. And I think the customization of it is one of the most powerful things with SOC 2. I think to your point, that makes it really important that people know where to look in the report. And I found like even you just describing the difference between having a SOC 2 report with security and confidentiality when you're thinking about availability some people just don't even know that. And I think that's why the value of SOC 2 has went down over the years where people are like, hey, it's just a check the box exercise because folks aren't actually educated on how to read the report and how to digest the information. What has helped you and in your career to learn where the important parts are? Is it just a matter of diving in and getting your hands dirty and reading the SOC 2 report? Or were there good resources out there that have helped you learn where to dive in and actually see where the value is and evaluating your vendors? I think it is having the, the opportunity to work very closely with security leaders and professionals and not stepping in from the outside as a compliance individual, but more inside seeing how the security teams enforce the controls, test, deal with incidents, the kinds of risks that they see and mitigate every day, and interpret that into what a good security program should look like, what the control should be. So I don't think there is necessarily a shortcut. I think looking at uh, NEST, obviously, as the golden standard for what an ideal security program is. I think that would be the best place for someone that doesn't have the experience of being inside of a security team for a long time that I've been fortunate to have. And that could be a really good, quick ramp up to understanding the security controls. And the other thing to remember is to think about the business. Just because all these controls, all these recommendations NIST has in there or another standard that you may decide to pursue, doesn't mean those all apply to your company. And the particular risk that you may have that you want to see addressed by the vendor that's providing the service. So it has to be really focused on the value that you're getting from this vendor and the kinds of risks that they have and associate that with your experience or relevantness controls that would apply to that and try to see that those controls are covered in the SOC 2 report. Yeah, 100%. I love the aspect that you talked there about tying it to the business, because I think that's where just security professionals in general get into trouble, where they only think about security in, in a small bucket, but are not thinking about the business impacts of what we're actually trying to do. And unfortunately, most companies are not in the security business. I know you and I both are at companies now that are security companies. So like naturally, there's a care of security, but most companies are building other things and security is a part of the organization, but it's not the business. It's not the thing that's bringing in money to keep the business afloat. So for you to get buy-in from a security perspective, you have to be able to tie things back to the business. How important is that, do you think, has been in your career from a security and compliance perspective of being able to translate all of the stuff in your lane to the business side of the house and make sure that they're bought into the activities that you have to do from a compliance and security perspective? I think it is critical. We cannot be successful as security or compliance professionals without 
working very closely with the business and helping the business understand how what we do support their needs. Because ultimately, the risks are up to the business to decide whether they will accept them or follow the strategies we recommend for addressing them. You know, we think they're above the the harm threshold, whatever settings we um, put in place. So it is also about building relationships and understanding the other side, the reasons why people are doing certain things. What I like about compliance, one of the things I like the most is that we often identify things outside of security that can benefit the business. There's a lot of room for building efficiency, bringing teams closer together, the collaboration, the knowledge sharing, that really the enforcement on documentation and training and, and the effectiveness of controls and the monitoring and learning that goes beyond security, but really tying it to KPIs that make sense to the business. I think that that all ties it uh, together. And without selling security or compliance to the business, there's no way to be successful. And we will always want to be a partner with the business. So for instance, I look at security, at least from a product perspective, as part of quality control. It should not be a separate thing. If you care about releasing code that doesn't have bugs, it's the same thing. You're releasing code without security bugs in it. So security is just part of quality control. So my role as a security compliance professional is to help engineers and developers understand that, find ways how we can be involved in their existing process instead of being another hammer or this scary thing or or something that they don't see any value of. Like, like we're, we're trying to help you release your code or deploy your service without these bugs, which include you know vulnerabilities or things that could take down your service. So it's really a, a quality of, of service matter that they should care about. Yeah, 100%. I, I've been uh, public about saying, you know, GRC is a great entry point for people to break into cybersecurity. And a lot of the reasons why I believe that is to the things that you just described there, that it's about collaboration. It's about more than just security. Uh, the thing that I love about compliance and the reason why I've kind of parked myself in this segment of the cybersecurity industry is that it does touch everything, that you get to interact with all of these different areas of the business and bring a different perspective. And I think if you're working in a different field, if you're working in accounting, if you're working in HR, if you're working in sales and you're like, I really want to get into tech, I really want to get into cyber, those collaboration skills, the, the ability to get people to buy into what you're talking about, the ability to bring people together and understand and show some empathy to what they're going through and then being able to pull it back to compliance, I think are some of the most important skills for compliance professionals. But I have got some pushback from people on that statement that GRC is the best entry point for people to break into cyber. I'd love your thoughts on, do you think GRC is a good entry point? And if so, why? And if not, why? Absolutely. Maybe I don't know enough, but from what I have experienced, I agree with you that GRC is the best entry point because there's so many positions, so many functions that a junior person can fill that we can easily train them and, and help them grow along the way. There's a lot of standard steps or work that can be a bit of a grind that uh, when you rise up the ladder, you, you may feel like those things are just too tiring from having done that for, for many, many years. And it's not something that I want to overburden or, or burn out a junior person with, but it's those things that are easy to pick up. They're easily repeatable and, and a, you know, very quick entryway into, hey, this is what this does for the business, there's some value. Like for instance, third-party risk management. There's no reason why we can't take somebody that could have been a construction worker, a nurse, or 
a call center person and, and just help them understand that this is our process. And if you're looking at SOC 2 reports, for instance, here's a set of controls that we find important for the business, the service, make sure that's listed in the SOC 2 report, make sure there are no nonconformities, read, you know, the qualified report, you know, opinion and so forth. Just give them like really quick guidance, but also help them understand why we're doing that. Because the last thing we want to do is give somebody task and they don't understand the why, how it benefits the business, how it benefits really the world. I right? want to make sure that we're doing business with secure companies that, that care about the data and the privacy of that data for the users. So we want to, you know, encourage that and enforce that through our third-party risk management practices. But there are all kinds of ways. If somebody, like you mentioned, accountant, if somebody is good at numbers, they're probably good at using Excel sheets and, and creating like metrics and KPIs. That's fantastic. We can help them use Excel or use Tableau or you know some kind of Power BI, some kind of tooling to start monitoring compliance, start monitoring security metrics, and, and, and leverage what they've learned to do that. Or even like a sales or, or marketing professional. Again, that collaboration, getting to understand other teams and how they do things is crucial. And there are a lot of risks depending on the what the business does in marketing or in sales and, and especially doing business with the European Union or Brazil or Singapore, or other regions where they have very strong privacy data protection laws. So understanding how sales functions or how marketing functions can really help a GRC professional to guide them in the way that would meet you know the business needs, but reduce those risks from being uh, materialized into fines or, or other kinds of problems for, for the company. Yeah, 100%. And I love those examples that you gave there too. So hopefully some of the listeners out there that hear this, folks that are trying to break into GRC can see from Val's examples there, there are ways that you can take those transferable skills into this field. And I think as we look out at the landscape and we see all the news about cybersecurity shortages and not being able to hire enough people and all of that stuff, I think we have to start giving people a chance. We have to start finding roles like that, the third-party risk management stuff or other areas where we're not looking at traditional backgrounds. We're not looking at trying to find this unicorn entry-level person with five years of experience. Those things just don't, don't go together. And I think as soon as like more professionals, more leaders like yourself take the mindset that you have, we're going to be able to solve this problem. We're going to be able to solve the skill shortage that supposedly exists out there. But I'd love to get your thoughts. You know, as a cybersecurity professional, someone that's in a leadership role, how do we solve that problem? How do we solve this problem that exists of not having enough people in this field? I think it is about recognizing it as a problem. And that is important for the world and especially for this country and for the company that we're, we're not just doing a service, you know, globally or to that particular individual, but we are doing a service to the company as well, because somebody that we invest time in, they're going to be much more likely to perform, you know, above normal, right? To really go all in because they will feel that appreciation. They'll be excited to learn new things. So chances are, you know, they'll probably perform better and produce more than somebody who's done that role for a long time and maybe feeling a bit of a burnout and, and just, you know, tired of doing the same thing all over the place. And they're also more likely to stick with the company that invests in them and appreciates them and, and trains them. So it's a win-win. It's a matter of, I think, working with the executives and structuring the budgets and the teams that there's opportunity to bring in interns or bring in you know very junior people and train them on particular roles and have you know vision and some roadmap that this is where this person may, may be in a year or in two years. But I think it's part of 
an overall view and, and leadership structure that you don't want to hire people that are going to be doing the same role for five years. That's at least the people that I've met for the most part, that doesn't make them very excited about their jobs. And there's always a lot more we can do in security or privacy or compliance. There's a lot more to learn. So there are set deliverables we want to deliver you know, for the business. But at the same time, we have a lot of open room to grow and, and learn. And so when we hire somebody, we can give them a set title, a set function. At the same time, we also have to leave them room where they can grow and, and, and do something more, something better, something different, maybe leverage the skills they've learned in a different profession or different point of view to give us that extra value in, in current career. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, uh, like you said, we got to acknowledge it. Leaders got to acknowledge it and then start figuring out ways to change the approach. You mentioned at the beginning about, I post a lot about mental health and, and something that's kind of really important to me as a human, but also important for me as a leader to make sure people are taking care of themselves. And we talked a little bit about how cybersecurity is kind of known for burnout. We have a lot of people in cyber that are burning out why do you think that's the case? Is it just the nature of the stress of this field or is there other factors at play that we're not seeing of why most cybersecurity professionals are feeling that they're burnt out and not able to take care of themselves? There are probably a lot of reasons. I think part of it is just like IT or the standard IT, security is not usually appreciated until things go wrong. And then security is often blamed for not fixing things beforehand or, or not building these things right. And there's a, always a lot of pressure because you may be a, even a, a big company like Microsoft, but there are nation states out to get you. It's really hard to compete even if you're a billion dollar company, especially when it comes to startups and smaller companies. You just don't have a lot of resources. But the expectations are, especially if you're doing business with a thousand customers, that you are performing just like a Fortune 1000 company even though you may have a tenth or a hundredth of the resources that they have. So it puts a lot of pressure on security professionals to do things right. And I think the other thing is, hopefully with the SEC requirements that we get more security conscious board members, we need the board to understand the value of security, of privacy, of compliance. We need the board to force auditing on the company itself to test how they're doing internally from their security and privacy practices. We need people to really understand that this is so important. Everything is so interconnected. All our data is out there. And you know, the more it goes on, the, the worse it's, it's going to be when we have a data breach. So we need to give more support to our security teams. And a lot of it is also that security is not often seen as delivering value to the business that if you're in sales or, or marketing or maybe in engineering, you're building something the company sells. So you're helping to sell that service. So you bring money in. So when things get tough, security can often be you know the, the thing that gets cut. Or if you have to ask for more resources to expand the security program, the business might decide to you know invest in spending a new feature, building a new feature, or hiring those extra sales folks or marketing to get you know a bigger share of the market. And so it's tough to compete with, you know, other business units that on the surface deliver more value. And, and they do, you know, in terms of clear financial funnel. But at the same time, if you get breached, you may lose all your business. You may be fined. You may be hit with lawsuits. So I, I think we just have to do better security and then selling ourselves as business value in terms of 
how we deliver, how we can promote the company as a secure vendor for all these major customers, uh, how we can demonstrate that security, those, those compliance practices, and you know, remind the business of the real risks that are there. But also, I'm sure we can do better as professionals in building those relationships and, and not be seen as just this scary monster that hides in the closet and comes out every once in a while to yell at people for doing things wrong, that we have to be more more active and engaging with the business and building relationships and being there as a guide rather than this enforcement tool so that people feel comfortable to come to security and being open about, hey, I did this thing. Is this bad or, or how can I do this better? So every time we, we have an incident or we have a big situation in the company that we treat it as a learning exercise and will help the business do better as opposed to telling the business, well, this is really dumb and you shouldn't be doing that and, and kind of like taking that I'm smarter than you approach because that's not helping anybody. We, we want to be seen as a guide, a mentor, a, a really a big support that the business should be leaning on, on not uh, a scary thing that they don't want to engage until they really have to. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's why it's so important for cyber professionals to protect themselves, to take care of their mental health, to take breaks, to uh, try really hard not to internalize the stresses and the other dynamics that come with this job. Because like you said, it's Sometimes it's very hard to feel the impact you're having, but you are having a big impact because if you weren't doing the things that you're doing, the company could have financial and reputational damage that sometimes can be irreparable. You know, breaches sometimes cause companies to go out of business. And it's a day where nobody hits you up in security can feel like you're not being appreciated, but it actually means you probably are doing a really good job. And I think cybersecurity professionals, uh, especially, have to protect their mental health. I think men right now like really got to protect their mental health because we've been kind of conditioned in our culture that we got to be tough. We can't share emotions. We're not supposed to cry and all these other things, but we're human, whether we're men or not, we're, we're still human. And we still have all of these feelings. Before we even started recording, you talked to me a little bit about recent mindfulness thing that that you've experienced. Um, talk to me a little bit about your journey with mental health and your journey of um, understanding the importance of taking care of yourself and as well as others in your organization. I learned the hard way. I burnt out and went down a really deep rabbit hole for a while. I struggled with depression for several years when it was really tough to you know get out of bed or, or even when I was doing things I really enjoyed. That's when I realized I hit the bottom because I was doing the things I loved, but I still felt so empty and tired and not feeling the joy as much uh, as, as I should have been doing. Um, and part of it is because I, I grew up in a totalitarian regime and, you know, immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager. And a lot of the early times after immigration was about surviving and, and kind of doing the things that my family uh, needed or I thought society expected of me. And I didn't think about my own needs or desires. And I ignored that for a long time until it, it really hit me. And then it became really difficult to recall what it was that I enjoyed, what it was that I liked, who was I outside of all these layers I put on that or others have placed on, on upon myself. But on the bright side, it, it really led me to this uh, self-learning, spiritual mindfulness journey. And, and a lot of it was due to my wife that, that led me to my first meditation kind of exercise retreat. And you know, I've done a lot of reading. I've been fortunate to meet some really 
wise and amazing teachers and some Buddhist monks and people that just felt like they were walking on air with just their love and their wisdom and, and just magnificence of being their presence. And over time, I, I've learned that I don't need to have a sole purpose to, to have a meaning of life or have it all figured out that it's okay to trust the universe. And I'm here to make the world better. And I'm here to try to be a better being every day. And if I can make a tiny bit of difference to you know anyone in my life, then that's worth it. So I've, you know, I focus on that and the little mindfulness webinar that I led yesterday was very therapeutic for me and, and also to get the feedback from others that they felt better, they felt less stressed, they felt happier, they felt more love. And and the really most valuable thing for me was the feedback that my compassion and love for them came across. This despite it being a, a virtual session. So that gave me a lot of hope that maybe I could do more of, of those things in the future. And definitely within teams too, that's that's something that I love more than anything is is mentoring and making people feel like they can be open with me. And because I learned early on in my career when I when I had my first subordinates that when people were underperforming, it wasn't because they were bad or they weren't skilled. There was something else going on. And and once we're able to figure out what that something else was, then you know, they performed well above my expectations. Uh, and it just, just really amazed me what they could do. So that's the attitude that I, I want to have. And I try to have every day, you know, in the workspace. And if I can organize soccer leagues, for instance, as a way to bring different teams together, including from other companies that were competing with each other, different types of volunteer events or other ideas that we can really spend time together. And I love what you mentioned about leading a like a mindfulness webinar at work, maybe on Monday. That that sounds amazing. I think we need more space for that, more reminders for people that those resources exist, these people exist. And just uh, even to sit back and step away from that hamster wheel and, and just be like, it's okay. It's okay to take a pause. It's okay to listen to my heartbeat or to my breath going in and, and just, just relax. Everything will be okay. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate you sharing that. I've I've had moments in my, you know, last couple of years where I realized that this mental health journey that I've been on, on it's been a lot for me. Uh, you know, it hasn't it's it's been beneficial. Uh, there's people that told me that like the things I talk about and share have helped them, but a lot of it is helped. It's been for myself. I've been on my own personal journey of going through and relearning who I am and to your point I've been in those depressive states where I don't want to get out of bed. I'm just completely sad and empty, regardless of the winds that are going on around me or the cool things that are happening. It just felt empty. And like you said, and I think the realization that that you came to is the same realization that I've come to at those times where you're more than the external things you put on. You're you're more than the things that other people are saying you are, you're more than your job title, you're more than the accomplishments you have and all these other things or the way that you can, like you're more than all of that. You have your core. And when you kind of go back to who am I, like who actually am I as a person and what are the things I actually care about, you start to realize a lot of the stuff that you've put on yourself is pointless. It actually really doesn't matter. And a lot of that is what's causing that depression. I'm a 
I'm a big Stoic uh, reader. I consider myself like a modern Stoic. I read Marcus Aurelius often and Seneca and Epictetus and a lot of those old, really wise philosophers. And, and Stoicism is all about putting things into two buckets, things you can control and things you can't control. And it's very hard to do. Um, it's very hard sometimes because you find yourself stressed and depressed or sad about things that are really outside of your control. But when you're able to step back and sit and go through that kind of uh, shedding of those external factors, and then you find out that little kid that enjoyed all those things that you used to enjoy, you still are there. And, and it's a beautiful journey. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And just, I think this conversation, this piece of the conversation is, is probably the most impactful, not just for the listeners, but for me too, because it's always a reminder when I have conversation with folks that are willing to be vulnerable and share their journey that we all are going through similar things. You know, it's not just me that feels certain emotions. It's not just um, me that's going through this, but like, like you said, like just stopping and pausing, hearing your breath, hearing your heartbeat, taking that break, taking that little break for meditation or mindfulness, it means the world and it, and it kind of changes your perspective. So definitely appreciate you sharing. And, and Val, I appreciate you as well being being on the podcast and having a great conversation about compliance and mental health and, and all things here. Um, before we hop off, I want to just give you the floor to share anything else with the listeners that you think would be beneficial. And then at the end, you know, tell them how to find you and reach you. Sure. Well, the one thing I, I didn't talk about yet is uh, API security, which is the reason that I joined No Name, my current company. We do everything from development testing to misconfiguration, inventory, identification of all the APIs, and you know, finding active attacks and, and helping customers block them and monitor for them. What I find really interesting is that we are playing catch up and API in general, I think, has been a overlooked elephant in the room or ignored or forgotten or invisible elephant because everything is done through APIs. But uh, when it comes to compliance, it doesn't really translate well into our existing controls and standards. And I often wonder if maybe we need to come up with an API compliance program or add API-specific controls into SOC 2 or, or ISO or uh, Cloud Security Alliance or something along those lines. Because I, I think a lot of times when I've seen it from the inside, I've seen it from the outside, you look at how auditors look at SDLC practices, for instance, they look for how you test your code, how you deployed your code, you know, you scan for vulnerabilities. It's generally just looked at standard software deployment, not as API service. How does that practice translate to how you manage your APIs? I've never even seen a conversation about it from, from an audit perspective. So that's something I don't have a solution for, but I hope if we get a lot of great minds like AJ and others in the industry to talk this through, maybe you know we can lead it from you from SANS or, or another perspective, get a lot of really good, wise people together. That's something I would like to see addressed because I think it's it's going to be a pretty big pain point for a lot of us with our data all being connected through APIs. And hopefully we can fix that. We can you know audit, comply, certify against that uh, bef before that ever happens. Yeah, absolutely. Shameless plug here. In a couple of weeks, Val, my uh, director of compliance at ByteCheck, Tara Cook, and myself will be on a National Association of Black Compliance and Risk Management Professionals webinar talking about API security and compliance and how it's the missing piece um, in compliance, because I wholeheartedly agree and think 
we either figure out a way to get it into SOC 2 as soon as possible and make it as a, a required component of interconnected SaaS apps and what are we doing to protect ourselves. Or like you said, maybe there's a, a chance for another another standard here. But we'll we'll have a great conversation. I'll make sure the show notes include a link for folks to register to see that webinar or just get the recording if they can't make it. Val, this has been amazing, man. I really enjoy this. I know it's taken us a little bit to get this on the calendar, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time here with me and excited for the listeners to hear this and excited for us to continue to, to get to know each other and, and build our friendship. So thank you again for, for coming on. Thank you, AJ. It's been a blast.